Good morning. Praise God. Are you happy to be here? I'm tempted to ask as Pastor Wood, how has been your week? You've had a good week? Yeah, you know Pastor would also pause and say, please talk to me. So, um, anyway, that's just on the side. It's another golden opportunity that we have to gather for our fellowship this morning. And um, we have a part nine. You know, when you listen to Pastor John teaching, he says it as though it is a surprise, and yet um, he's the one who is going to teach that same lesson. So allow me to just borrow his words and say, we have a part nine this morning, and uh, I'd like us to read the words, those four passages. The first one in the book of Matthew 17, and verse 5, and this is during the transfiguration of Jesus. As we are aware, Peter, James, and John were with him on the mountain. And verse 5 reminds us this morning that while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And I'm just here to encourage us even this morning that every so often when we have opportunity to study the scriptures, it is him that we are to hear. Of course, God will use vessels like you and I, but ultimately, it is his word. And then in John chapter number 2, verse 5, during that first miracle um, in Cana of Galilee, when Jesus changed water to wine, they had run short of wine, and when Jesus' mother approached him, um, he told her, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. But in verse 5, his mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do. And I'm here to just encourage us one more time that even as we hear him, it is with a view to doing. We don't study scripture to answer Bible trivia. We don't answer scripture to we don't study scripture to accumulate information but it is with a view to doing, and that is why that last song would remind us about those ancient words. They are to impart our hearts. And I'm going to use an example in Ruth, chapter number three, of one who, in a manner of speaking, heard him and also chose to do what she had been told, because Naomi, we know, is a type of the scriptures. And in Ruth, chapter three, verse five to six, after being given information or direction, so to speak, in verse five, Ruth said to her, all that you say to me, I will do. And in verse 6, she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And so we have an example there, friends, that even as we continue in our pilgrim journey, as we hear, it is with a view to doing. And maybe the question we need to ask ourselves every time we study scripture is, what is God saying to me? It would be tragic that after you know spending all this time all that we did was to accumulate information and connected scriptures, but really there was no transformation in our hearts. And I'm going to read the last passage in John 13, 17. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples after washing their feet. And he tells them, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The blessing comes when we do, and that is where the true transformation really is. And so, even as we reflect on uh, the series that we've been on, Loss for Profit, 
I wonder how much loss has happened in our lives since we began part one. Uh, this week, uh, during the Cornerstone Bible study on Wednesday, there's something uh, that uh, John Ziegler said that I thought I would share with us, that in his quest to come to understand the scriptures, he asked a friend of his, how best are we to understand scripture? And this friend of his told him that he needed only two books. Can we guess which these two books are? Any guess? There will be a reward. You'll get an extra cup of tea. <laughs> if you are like me, um, maybe you may have said in your heart, the old and the New Testament. That was my thought as well. But he said, this friend told him, he needed two books. One is the Bible. You study the Bible. And if you want to understand what the Bible says, you need another Bible to just confirm what the first Bible said. And I thought, wow, all that we need is the scriptures. And um, I think um, in the course of the week, I also listened to um, uh, Jacob, the son to Pastor Noble, and he made a statement that um, I thought we might also ponder. He said that every time you spend time in the Word, in a sense, you have lost time in the world. And that every time you spend time in the world, you're losing time in the Word. And I thought, wow. You know, to hear such statements made by a teenager, um, they are quite humbling, but yet they are so profound. And I believe that what uh, Jacob is trying to say is that there is an um, opportunity cost, and it is either we are in the world or we are in the world. So let's go to our lesson, uh, Loss for Profit, uh, part 9. Uh, let me read the head scriptures in Matthew 16, verse 24 to 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone, literally, if any one of you desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul. Or oh, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And in the last eight parts, by way of reminder, we have learned that coming after Jesus is an individual choice and equally an individual responsibility that we make on a daily basis. And this involves a threefold action to deny or disown self, to take up the cross, and to follow him. And to take up the cross and to present our bodies a living sacrifice, as we read in Romans 12.1, are two ways of saying the same thing. That which is still in bondage to sin, the unredeemed soul, the self-life, is to be kept continually in a state of dying so as to remain in subjection under our fully redeemed spirit, as is pictured in the ordinance of baptism. And to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow the Lord, is the same action as losing our soul, our life, choosing to lay down our self-life for the sake of Christ, as we have read in Matthew 16:25. And we have only two options, dear friends, to either lose now and profit then, or to profit now and to lose then. And we don't need to be smart to make the right choice. Two weeks ago, we looked at the impact of leaven 
in the church. And the reason why we went all these ways is because, you know, Jesus is saying that if anyone desires to come after him, he is to deny himself, take up his cross and follow him. And we have examined the impact of the instruction that came to the children of Israel by their religious leaders. In a manner of speaking, they influenced the perception that the Jews had of Christ. And you know, when you look at the church as well, we saw in that last lesson that really there might be no room for Christ in the church, specifically the word of the kingdom. And so, having been taken from the Jews, the kingdom of the heavens would now be given to a nation bearing fruits of it. And that is the church. The offer of the kingdom was made to the church comprised of largely Gentiles. And this was only after the Jews rejected the reoffer of the kingdom, fulfilling that parable that we read in Luke 13. And the book of Acts is a record of the reoffer of the kingdom to the Jews by the newly established church, which was made of Jews at the time. The Jewish religious leaders stood in opposition to the message, the word of the kingdom, and also those who taught the message. And although the church underwent persecution, we still continue to see growth. And the climax and turnaround of this persecution was effected by none other than Saul. But even then, the church was not deterred. Thankfully, after his encounter with the Lord, we see Saul, a transformed man, who began preaching that Jesus is the Christ, which really is the word of the kingdom. But rather, uh, sooner rather than later, the same persecution that he meted out against the church was equally meted out against him in the hands of the Jews. And after Israel committed that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that we saw in Matthew 12, there was a shift in the ministry of Christ. We now see him introducing parables in his teaching. And now that the kingdom of the heavens has been taken from Israel, the focus of these parables really is the church. And he begins with the parable of the sower. And we did see that of the four grounds, which represents Christians like you and I, three bear no fruit. And um, in the recent teaching, we have learned that the group that you and I belong to is really a choice that is, that is determined by the attitude or the response that we have to the word of the kingdom. And to the extent that believers bear no fruit, those three groups, it is safe to conclude that, the, that um, the word of the kingdom, the Christ, has no room in their lives. However, we also did see that Satan continues to unleash his attacks against the fruit-bearing Christians. How does he do this? By introducing tears, influencing that unnatural growth of the church with a view to curtail their progress, before finally unleashing um, the leaven. And we know that leaven is always used in scripture to show that which is corrupt. And so Satan's schemes in corrupting the word of the kingdom have been effective in this present dispensation. You can see how powerful deception is. And the scriptures remind us that at the end, the word of the kingdom will be so deteriorated that the whole will be leavened and this we saw pictured by the church in Laodicea, the seventh church that Christ talks about in Revelations. The Laodicean church is a church that is so deceived that she says she has need of nothing. And sadly, this includes Christ, whom we see standing at the door 
as we read from Revelation uh, 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. And so we did say that to the extent that Christ is outside, we can safely conclude that the church has no room for him as is demonstrated in her rejection of the word of the kingdom. And we did conclude by saying that making room for Christ is an invitation to lose every other biblical teaching that is contrary to the word of the kingdom that we may have been socialized in, regardless of who teaches it, and making the choice to narrow ourselves to the word of the kingdom only. And this must be accompanied by our willingness to organize our lives in agreement with what God has said. And with the teachings that we have continued to receive, specifically on day three, I hope that we can see the impact, the necessity for us to bear fruit, because the kingdom of the heavens is on offer to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And so, if we are to enter the kingdom of the heavens, we must bear fruit. And I pray that God is helping us, that if we are not bearing fruit, that is raising us, that is propping us up, that if we are bearing fruit then, that is continuing to prune us, and that based on our choice to abide, that we will come to that place where we bear much fruit, and by this the Father will be glorified. And so, um, let's go back to that parable of the sower, and focus on this one ground that bore fruit, reading Matthew 13, verse 8. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And Jesus described the good ground Christian as follows. One who hears the word of the kingdom and understands it. And this is his explanation in Matthew 13, verse 23. But he who received seed on the good ground is he who hears the word of the kingdom and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. When you look at Mark's account, Jesus adds more information. He says that the good ground Christian is one who hears the word of the kingdom and accepts it, reading Mark 4.20. But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word of the kingdom accept it and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And if you are to look at the Greek meaning for the word accept, it means to accept near, to admit, or by implication, delight in, to receive. And so Jesus is saying that if we are to bear fruit, we must be those who hear the word of the kingdom who understand it, and also who accept it. Do we delight in this truth? Do we receive it? Like uh, we would read, um, I think it is First Thessalonians, not First Timothy 2.13, about brethren in Thessalonica who received the word that they had as a word of God, not as a word of men. And it was working in their lives. But if we are to look at Luke's account, Jesus says something else in addition to what we have seen in Matthew and Mark, that the good ground Christian is one who hears the word of the kingdom with a noble and good heart, who keep it and bear fruit with patience, reading Luke 8.15. But the ones that fell on the good ground 
are those who, having heard the word of the kingdom, with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. And I'm sure that when pastor was teaching, he did say that the meaning of the word keep it is to seize it. But I just checked the, word, uh, the meaning of the word noble in Greek, and it means beautiful, it means good, valuable, virtuous, uh, for appearance or use. It means better, fair, honest, well, worthy. And that word good is a primary word, which means good in any sense, often as a noun. And so even as we look at this description, I pray that we are such who receive the word of the kingdom, who hear it rather with a noble and a good heart and seize it. And it is by choosing to do so that we shall come to that place of bearing fruit. But you realize that bearing fruit comes with patience because it is not an overnight work. We cannot hear the word today and tomorrow we are beginning to bear fruit. There must be an element of patient endurance on our part. And so in this we see that Christ demonstrates to us that we can bear fruit. Praise God. That there is a possibility for us based on our response after hearing the word of the kingdom to bear fruit. And I'm here to encourage us this morning that if by any reason we find ourselves in the three grounds as those who do not bear fruit, you know, there is nothing we can do about yesterday. But this morning we have an opportunity to hear the word of the kingdom and understand it, to hear the word of the kingdom and accept it, to hear the word of the kingdom with a noble and good heart, keep it, and by so doing, bear fruit with patient endurance. And so to the extent that a good ground Christian bears fruit, we can safely conclude that this is a believer who has room for Christ to lodge. By extension, this is a believer who has embraced the word of the kingdom in totality. And as such, his or her perception of Christ is correct, it is right. It is what my dear friend will call being totally sold out to this truth. And maybe you are asking, why is it important for a believer to hear the word of the kingdom? And that's a very good question. Now if we look at the place that um, we have been in Matthew, this should be Matthew 16, 13, sorry, not 13, 16, should be Matthew 16, verse 13, when Jesus has a discourse with his disciples and he asks them, who do people say that I am? And they give their responses, but he asks them, but who do you say that I am? And in verse, six, uh, verse 13, I believe of Matthew, uh, let me just confirm that. Yes, Matthew 16, yes, verse 16, following. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, by Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. It is very clear from this passage of scripture that Jesus will build and is building his church on this rock. And this rock, contrary to what I was taught in the past, does not refer to Peter, 
but rather it refers to this revelation given to Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It is based on this revelation that the church is to be anchored. And for this reason, the church must be correctly taught the message concerning Christ and his coming kingdom. And you know what this message is? It is the word of the kingdom. It is the gospel of the glories of Christ. It is Paul's gospel. It is the gospel of Christ that we are presently learning from Romans 1.16 where Paul writes and says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And I pose a question to us this morning that knowing the impact of the leaven according to the scriptures is the church of today being built on this rock. If you were to randomly walk into churches this morning, would this really be the anchorage on which the church is built? Your answer is just similar to mine. It's a big no. Let us go to the Old Testament and look for one person, a type of a Christian, who had room for Christ to lodge in. And so we shall go to my country and to my family, as Abraham would instruct his oldest servant. I hope that we know that Genesis 21 to 25 foreshadow in type the complete history of Israel and the church. The Genesis 21, where we find the birth of Isaac, is a type of the birth of Christ. Genesis 22, where we find Isaac being offered as a sacrifice, is a type of the death and resurrection of Christ. Genesis 23, where we find the death of Sarah, is a type of the setting aside of Israel. And Genesis 24, where we find the search for a bride for Isaac, is a type of the search for the bride of Christ. And finally, Genesis 25, where we find the remarriage of Abraham, is a type of the restoration of Israel. And if we go through these five chapters, has Christ been born? Has he been born? Has he been offered as a sacrifice and resurrected? Has the nation of Israel been set aside? So where are we in dispensationally? We're in Genesis 24, isn't it? And so in Genesis 24, where we are going to focus this lesson, we find that Abraham is a type of God the Father. Isaac is a type of God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Sarah is a type of Israel. And Abraham's oldest servant is a type of God, the Holy Spirit. So let's look at what happens in Genesis 24. We find that Abraham sent his oldest servant to Mesopotamia on a very specific mission to search for and procure a bride for his son from his family. Reading Genesis 24 from verse 2 following. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had. Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you, sh you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. And in the antitype, God the Father has sent the Holy Spirit to the world on one specific mission, and that is to search for and procure a bride 
for Christ. Let's continue in verse 5. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? And in this we find that Abraham's oldest servant must have known that not every woman would be willing to follow him to this land. And in response, Abraham made it very clear that Isaac's wife was not to be taken from the Canaanites. Reading verse 6, But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. You know, the son will not be brought back until he has a wife. And Abraham's persuasion was very clear. To him, God would prosper his oldest servant's mission. Continuing in verse 7, The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And the older servant would only be discharged from this oath if the woman he found was not willing to follow him. Reading verse 8. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. He repeats what he says in verse 6. Do not take my son back there. And to demonstrate how serious a matter this was to Abraham, his older servant swore concerning it. Reading verse 9. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. And so, friends, as we have seen with the type, that is the same that we are to find with the antitype. That in his search for a bride for Christ, the Holy Spirit knows fully well that not all believers would be willing to follow him, to become the bride of Christ. And I pose a question to myself. Am I willing to follow the Holy Spirit. The bride of Christ, it is very clear, will be procured from the family of God, and that is the church. And God will prosper the present mission of the Holy Spirit because we know that of his plans, they cannot be thwarted. And for a fact, dear friends, Christ will have a bride to rule with on the seventh day. The big question is, am I going to be part of that bride? Will you be part of that bride? Let us not entertain any narrative that Christ will not have a bride. The reality of the matter, going by what we shall study in Genesis 24, it is very clear. Christ will have a bride. And I pray that all of us here today will form that very bride. And the Holy Spirit will not be held responsible if believers are unwilling to follow him, to become the bride of Christ. You know, that introduces that element again of choice, willingness on our part. And the search for the bride of Christ is a serious matter in God's economy. This wearing that we find in verse 9 is a picture of how serious a matter it is. And you know this search has been ongoing in the present dispensation, almost 2,000 years, so to speak. How patient is God with us? And so let us continue and find um, what began, what became rather when Abraham's servant arrived in the city where we find him by a well of water at evening time. Reading Genesis 24, verse 10 to 16. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahum. 
and he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. Then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I, here I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, Please, let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, Drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And it happened before he had finished speaking, that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold, a virgin, no man had known her, and she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. What a very interesting passage to read this morning. Abraham's oldest servant, obeying the instructions of Abraham, made his way to the city. And he arrived in the city at what time? At evening time. And this was the time when women go out to draw water. And he positioned himself by a well of water. No sooner had he finished praying than Rebekah came to the well. And of Rebekah we are told that she was the daughter of Bethuel the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, who was Abraham's brother. She came to the well with her pitcher. She was very beautiful to behold. She was a virgin, no man had known her. And she went down to the well. She filled her pitcher and came up. And of um, significance to us is all these things that we have read, I'm sure they sound like pure theory, so to speak. And we need to ask ourselves, because the Bible is a spiritual book, what is the spiritual significance of all these things that we are reading? Being positioned by the well of water, the Holy Spirit, typified by Abraham's oldest servant, is found in only one place, and that is the water of the word, the scriptures. Reading Ephesians 5.26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water, by the word. Friends, if you want to have an interaction with the Holy Spirit, you don't find him anywhere else. You find him in the scriptures. And you know it is such a joy that all that I need to do is just to set aside quality time and begin to study for me to have this interaction that we see um, Abraham's older servant and Rebekah having. We know that the Holy, script, the Holy Spirit is the author of scripture. Reading Second Peter 1, 20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit as well, not only is the author of scripture, but is also the teacher of it. Reading uh, 1 Corinthians 2.13, these things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. 
Then Jesus say in John 16:13, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own, on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. And in Revelation, I think it is uh, seven times we are told, he was an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And what is the import of all this? You know, friends, I grew up at a time where it was not uncommon when you met for fellowship for somebody to say, you know, the Holy Spirit told me this. And I would always wonder, this Holy Spirit who speaks to so and so, why wouldn't he speak to me as well? And if I remember the uh, object of much of what the Holy Spirit was saying, it had nothing to do with scripture. It was the Holy Spirit has said we need to give this money. The Holy Spirit has said we need to go to this place. Rarely did I hear somebody say, I studied the scriptures and the Holy Spirit said, said this and this. And unbeknown to me, all this time when I was studying scripture, the Holy Spirit was speaking, wasn't he? But you know, that was not the, the language that, we, that I grew up in. Thankfully today, that if we set aside quality time and study the scriptures, you know, next time you meet someone, you can tell them actually, you know, I was studying and the Holy Spirit revealed this and this to me. And so friends, if we are to find, if we are to be found by the Holy Spirit, it is only in one place. It is in the study of his word. And this has to be rightly divided. But we also saw that Abraham's oldest servant arrived in the city at evening time. Evening is a time when the sun sets and thus connoting the end of day. Why do we say this? Because in Mark 1.32, at evening, when the sun had set, evening is considered to be a time when the day is first spent. In Luke 24.29, the two disciples of Jesus constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is first spent. Evening is also considered a late hour for the simple reason that it precedes the dark. Reading Matthew 24, 15, when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. And so when we read about evening time, we are almost approaching the end of the day. And in God's restorative program, there were six days of work and a seventh day of rest from Genesis 1 to chapter 2, verse 3. And this is the same pattern that he is using to restore man, only that each of the days comprises a thousand years, according to 2 Peter 3.8. And friends, I want to submit to us that we are on the last days of the present dispensation. And in this, we can surmise that it is evening time. And you know, in the natural, after a long day's work, evening comes with a need for rest, for rejuvenation, for relaxation. Hardly would anything meaningful be done at such a time. However, the scriptures tell us that it was at evening time that women went to draw water, reminding us of the necessity for us to be sober. That even though we are approaching the end of this dispensation, we are to be sober, we are to be vigilant at all times. As Peter would tell us in 1 Peter 5.8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We must not let our guard down merely because it is evening time and we are tired. We are weary and worn out 
from our daily engagements. We find such a warning of Esau's account because in Genesis 25:29, now Jacob cooked a stew and Esau came in from the field and he was weary. And you know what befell Esau? He lost the inheritance and Jacob took it. And therefore, dear friends, I am here to encourage us. And I need to encourage myself as well. That even though we are approaching the end of this dispensation, let us not let our guards down. Let us still make room for the Lord. And while this was the time for women and daughters of men to go and draw water, the surprising thing as I studied this time around is that only Rebecca showed up. Where were the rest of the women? You know, where were the other women? Where were the other daughters of men? Did they not have a need for them to draw water? And in seeing that only Rebecca was available, so to speak, it is very clear to me that it is not obvious that all believers typified by the women and the daughters of men will spend time by the well, searching, studying, and applying themselves to the scriptures. I wonder this morning if God was to look at CNC Nairobi, would he find Rebecca as many as we are this morning? You know, Jesus speaking in Matthew 7, 13 to 14 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Can you find something you're not looking for? If you're walking down the stairs and you find um, and you stumbled upon a thousand shilling note, can you come and tell us I found it? Because you're not looking for it, isn't it? And so if these few found it, it can only be that they were looking for it. And haven't we known from Luke 13, 24, that one has to strive to be found at the well? Jesus speaking says, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And I wondered whether this was the reason only Rebecca showed up at evening time. The rest of the women were not willing to strive. They were not willing to enter by this narrow gate. And that is why they were not there that day. Maybe they took a break. I do not know. And even as we continue with Genesis 24, we may need to ask the question, well, who is at the well of water? Rebecca, as we have read, was the daughter of Bethel, the son of Milcom, the wife of Nahor, who was Abraham's brother. And she belonged to Abraham's family, just as Abraham had told the servant, but you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. And Abraham's family is a picture of God's family, the church, reading Paul's account in Galatians 6.10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And even as I stand here this morning, I'm glad that I'm speaking to those who are of the household of faith. I'm speaking to those who are of the family of God, literally speaking, of the family of Abraham, like Rebecca. And she came to the well with her picture. And she went down to the well to draw water and to come up. I don't know if there's any among us who grew up, who was brought up in the village where you needed to go to the river to fetch water. 
um, a bit of my life, yes, was there. But you know, the, the difference between what I saw and what I'm reading here is that this was a well. It was not a river. You know, if it is a river, you just go fetch water and come. But looking at this well, someone had to go down, collect the water, come up and go back. And Rebecca was not a stranger to the well. And she did not use a borrowed picture. It was her own. And I want to submit to us, my brothers and my sisters, that every believer, each one of us this morning, we have an individual responsibility, like we saw at the beginning of this lesson, to search the scriptures for ourselves, that we cannot rely on another. We have to do it for ourselves. If any one of us had listened to last Sunday's teaching by Ben, part three of um, The Lord's Will, he did pose some questions that I thought were pertinent. Because he was asking, do we know how to rightly divide the scriptures for ourselves? And in that lesson he said that if we do not know, that we should not shy. That we have those in our midst that we can go to and ask for this help. It calls for a lot of humility. So that friends, this that we are learning should be our day-to-day uh, -day engagement, so to speak. You know, when God provided manna for the Israelites, each man had to go out and collect it personally. In Exodus 16, 16, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need, one omer for each person. According to the number of persons, let every man take for those who are in his tent. There was no way, dear friends, that one would be idle enough or tired enough for that matter and send the neighbor. You know, we are ten in our family, so please uh, come with some for my family members. Today I'm not feeling like going. You had to go out and collect the manna for your family. It did not matter whether this was your brother. You still had to go for your own. And I want to submit to us this morning that we must cultivate this same culture at a very personal level. That it must be one of our um, values, it, so to speak. This must be an attribute that is given to us that we are those who go to the well repeatedly and with our very own picture. And we see Rebecca went down to the well to draw water. I was really curious to find out what does it mean to go down. And the Hebrew meaning of it means to descend, literally to go downwards, or conventionally to a lower region. Going down to the well is an invitation to descend. And you know, this was a literal action that Rebecca did. She literally had to go down. But I submit to us that we may consider this as a picture of humility on our part. That if we are to draw water from the well, we must of necessity go down. If you look at the Greek meaning for Hebrew, it means not above the ground. In other words, it has to be down there. And that is a picture of humility. Jesus speaking to his disciples in Matthew 18, verse 2 to 4 says, Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of the heavens. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know, when you see minor running up and around, he has no fear, you know. It doesn't matter to him. 
he can move from that end to this end without any shame, you know. That is how children are. And, you know, Jesus is not saying that we are to be childish. He's saying that we are to be childlike. And it takes a lot of humility, dear friends, even for us on a daily basis, to just set aside that time. Our brother Johnson has just told us how much we can be overtaken by events. You know, there are some things that are so juicy to talk about. I find at work, every lunch hour, my colleagues meet somewhere to talk about the politics of the day. And you know, it's a very juicy topic. It's very juicy to talk about movies. It's so juicy to talk about football, for those who love football. But when it comes to scripture, that is where we will be labeled spiritual. You know, because people don't consider it to be that juicy. And I submit to us that if we are to go to the world, that it, uh, it behooves on us to be humble. What else do we know about wells? Wells are deep. And this is the account of the Samaritan woman in John 4, 11 to 12. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? We can see that this was a deep well. And since the well is not shallow, I submit to us that it can only mean that going down to the well is a transition that we make from the milk of the word to the meat of the word. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 5.13, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age, the mature, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Please read to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6. And maybe... Owing to this requirement of going down to the well and also at evening time, maybe no other woman apart from Rebecca was available on this particular day. And I ask myself, am I willing to go down to the well? And you see, she had to go down and come, go down and come. That was the norm. The other attributes that we have read of Rebecca, that she was very beautiful to behold. She was a virgin. No man had known her. And beauty is certainly a physical attribute. And no doubt, as my friend would put it, it is transient. And the Hebrew word for beautiful means good as an adjective. In the wildest sense, used likewise as a noun, both in the masculine and the feminine, the singular and the plural. Good, a good, a good thing, a good man or woman, the good, the goods, or good things, good men or women. Also as an adverb, it means well, beautiful, best, better. And when I thought about this, I wondered, could this be a similar relationship to that word noble that we found in Luke 8.15? That a good ground Christian, as we have seen, is one who hears the word of the kingdom, with a noble and good heart, keep it, and bear fruit with patience. And by way of reminder, the Greek word for noble, among many things, means beautiful. Maybe there is a connection there. And Jesus says in Matthew 12, 35, that a good man, 
out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth evil. Rebecca was this good um, woman that we are reading about. That she was the one who, like Jesus speaks in Luke 8, would have received the word of the kingdom with a noble and a good heart. Number two, she was a virgin. No man had known her. Does this not remind us of Mary that we just uh, finished looking at recently in Luke one thirty-four? Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I do not know a man? But what is the spiritual application of this? This will take us nowhere else but to Matthew 25 where we have the parable of the ten virgins where Jesus speaking says, Then the kingdom of the heavens shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lambs and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise, and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lambs and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lambs. And I hope that we know that oil is used in Scripture to symbolize the Holy Spirit. All believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but not all believers are filled with the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, God, using the pen of Paul, would not give us an instruction in Ephesians 5:18 to 19, and do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And friends, without understanding the word of the kingdom, being filled with the Spirit, to me, was speaking in tongues. It was having that word of knowledge. But thankfully, we have a better understanding, if not the only understanding, of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit is described by comparing the companion epistle, Colossians 3, verse 16, which Paul writes and says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And so to be filled with the Spirit is to let the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. And what is the word of Christ? Because Paul did not say, let the word of Jesus. He did not say, let the word of God dwell in you richly. He says, let the word of Christ Christ, the anointed one to rule. And this has everything to do, therefore, with the word of the kingdom. It has to dwell in us richly in all wisdom. Rebecca typifies this wise virgin who had an extra supply of oil. And a wise virgin, therefore, is a believer who has allowed the word of Christ, the word of the kingdom, to dwell in, uh, in them richly. And the Greek word for to dwell in means to inhabit the word of Christ has to inhabit our lives richly. And we can therefore conclude that a wise virgin has room for Christ to lodge. Such a believer will be presented to Christ as a chaste virgin, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And having identified Rebecca, the oldest servant asked her a question 
that maybe we may pose as being asked to us this morning. Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? And Rebecca gave an answer in verse 25 of Genesis 24. Moreover, she said to him, We have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. My brothers and my sisters, while Jesus did not have room during his birth, while he did not have a place to lay his head during his first advent among the nation of Israel, I'm here to encourage us that there is a possibility for us in following the example of Rebecca to truly come to that place where we can say that we have room for Christ to lodge. And I hope that we remember Christ is not homeless. He's not looking for a place to sleep today. This has nothing to do with the physical, but this has everything to do with our willingness to embrace the word of the kingdom. In a manner of speaking, it is our willingness, our choice, to say no to everything else that we may have been instructed in. And you know, with this uh, choice to have room for Christ to lodge, it will be possible for us to follow him. Our having room for Christ to lodge, my brothers and my sisters, is not in the verbal response that we give. If you are to ask me this morning, Beth, do you have room for Christ to lodge? I will tell you yes, but it's not enough to say yes. Our having room for Christ to lodge is our daily resolve to pay the price to be found at the well of God's word to the extent that it influences the daily choices that we make. And friends, to the extent that we are willing to do this, I submit to us that we are answering in the affirmative that there is room for Christ to lodge. You know, when you look at the pattern in Genesis 24, this was not the first question that Abraham's servant asked. In other words, he did not meet Rebecca and ask her straight on, do you have room for us to lodge? Abraham's oldest servant had to observe what Rebecca was doing. And I submit to us that, friends, if we have the opportunity to be found at the well of God's word, even in the evening, if we are willing to pattern our lives after the wise virgin that we read about in Matthew 25, being members of God's family, the church, I want to submit to us that in so doing, we are finding room for Christ to lodge. I leave us with a question. Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? To the extent that um, Rebecca was at the well, she was in a position to answer in the affirmative. I submit to us humbly that if we are not at the well, there is no way that he has room for us to lodge. Shall we pray? Our gracious Father and our God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you. And we bless you, dear Father, for converging us here this morning by the well of your word. We thank you, dear God, that you would remind us time and again of our desire, dear Father, to come after you that we have to deny ourselves, we have to take up the cross and to follow you. And our ability to follow you, Lord, is directly proportional to our attitude, our perception of who you are. And I pray for each one of us this morning. Lord, we are approaching the end of this dispensation. It is evening time. And even then, your Holy Spirit is positioned at the water of your word. 
And I pray that, Lord, you will grace us to pay the price, dear Father, to be found at the well, that we shall choose, dear Father, to be those wise virgins who carry their lamps with that extra supply of oil, letting the word of Christ to lodge in us richly. Loving Father, we ask you to help us to develop the discipline, if we haven't, to be at the well, dear God, using our very own pictures, dear Father. And Lord, we thank you because, Lord, you love us. And that is why, God, you would bring even this instruction to us this morning. And therefore, God, I pray that we shall not allow this word to fall to the ground, but the Lord, like the Bereans, that we shall go back and search the scriptures and confirm whether these things were so. So that, dear Father, even like Rebecca would say that there is room, the Lord, it shall be, even in our own lives, allowing us to continue with our pilgrim journey. And one day, dear Father, expect to be like Rebecca, becoming the bride of Isaac and the one whom he typifies, and that is Jesus. We thank you and we bless you because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much.